20 is about the Apostle Paul leaving the church in Ephesus. It's in the 20th chapter. From Miletus, he sent a message to Ephesus asking the elders of the church to meet him. And when he had finished speaking with them, he knelt down with them all and they prayed. And there was much weeping among them all and they embraced Paul and kissed him and grieving especially because of what he had said that they would not see him again. And then they brought him to the ship. The word of the Lord. Now, I I don't know how many of you have ever been to the ruins in Ephesus, which is in Turkey, but it's an incredible city, Roman city. It was very sophisticated. It had marble streets. It had running water. It had a sewage system. It had a big uh, amphitheater, a gorgeous library. Some of the remains are still there. I always thought, you know, when I was younger reading Ephesus, I guess I thought, I really didn't think much about it, but I guess I thought it was just a little town on the side of the road with a dirt road going through it with chicken wire and, uh, you know, just an old unsophisticated village, but that's not the case. Ephesus uh, was a major seaport, Roman Empire, strategically placed city of over a million people. It was huge. And what I learned in following Paul around on his journeys uh, on our trips when we went over to Turkey and Greece was that he was really being strategic when he started a church. He wasn't just planting churches. He was putting church communities in these strategic Roman Empire majestic cities like Ephesus. So he was there for a reason. It's not unusual when Paul started a church, which by the way, for those of you younger, when Paul started a church, he didn't build a church like this. No, they, they weren't building buildings until after 320 AD. So that was hundreds of years later. They were meeting in homes and breaking bread and praying together. They were a Christian community ever before they were a building. It's a very important sentence. They were a Christian community, the church was, ever before it was a building. So they didn't go to church, they were church. They lived this Christian principle. They're living in these sophisticated cities that have all these temples to pagan gods. Now the deal was, you had to sacrifice to the pagan gods to keep them happy so that they, those pagan gods, would give you rain or children or a harvest or whatever it was that God represented. When Paul comes along and says, well, there's this God of Abraham and Sarah who not only doesn't require you to sacrifice on an altar to keep God happy, but this God sacrificed his only son for you. Do you see how countercultural Christianity was in the Roman Empire? Oh, it struck a chord. People wanted to know more about this, and it's very unusual for Paul to stay anywhere uh, more than a couple of months or so in any of these church communities he was building. And then he'd leave somebody behind to take care of it and write letters back to make sure they were on track. But he stayed in Ephesus for 
three years. Now, that doesn't sound like a long time, but for Paul, it was an eternity. And he tells them, I stayed with you three years teaching night and day this Christian gospel. So he has a lot invested in it. And he is so popular in Ephesus that he creates a turmoil, which he did in most every town he was in. But in Ephesus, he was preaching against the pagan gods and the business people were selling little statues of Artemis, one of the pagan gods. And they were making money off of paganism. They got upset with Paul because he was winning the city over to Christianity. He was that popular. So they basically had a riot in the amphitheater, the remains of which are still there, and they were yelling, great is Artemis, down with Paul, great is Artemis, and Paul was run out of town. For several months, he went to several other locations, and then on his way back to Jerusalem, that's where this little clip happens. He writes to the elders, the leaders of the church in Ephesus and said, you know, basically, I can't come back into town. But would you meet me in Miletus? Now, Miletus is 25, 30 miles south of Ephesus, so it's more than a day's journey. Far enough out of town, no problem. And the elders met him there. And basically, that speech is in your Bible in the book of Acts. You'll notice I skipped over it from verse 7 to verse 36. Because here's the part I wanted to focus on. He, he bolsters the leadership. He tells them, watch out, there are wolves that are going to come and try to steal everything I've done. Uh, you are in charge. That's what he told them. And then this happened. When he had finished speaking, he knelt down with them all and prayed, and there was much weeping among them all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving especially because of what he had said, that they would would not see him again, and then they brought him to the ship. Now, you know what strikes me about this? This is just tucked away in your Bible. What strikes me about this is how personal it is. Kissing, grieving, praying. This is intimate. I almost feel like I shouldn't watch it as I read it. It's like I want to turn away from it. And then it strikes me, a pastor's relationship with a church is not like any other relationship. Your relationship with your pastor is not like your relationship with your lawyer or even your doctor. It's not like your relationship with your banker. Your relationship with your pastor is very, very unique because we bond with our people of all ages. Some of my best friends in the church have been 90 years plus. And some of my friends in churches have been nine years old and minus. And so we cross all the age spans in our bonding as we perform your baptisms, confirm the youth, conduct weddings, celebrate births, graduations, retirements. We preside over your funerals. We are with your families as they grieve. We're with you on your worst day, your pastor is. And we're also with you on your best day. We teach, we preach the gospel, we counsel people in distress confidentially in the confines of our offices. The rest of the congregation knows nothing about what's going on in your life when you meet with us. We're one of the few people in your life who are totally confidential 
when we're talking with you. It's a very unique relationship. So ministry is not measured by how many members you have in your church, nor by, you know, how much you pledge. Okay, well, it's a little bit about that. Um, No, it's about relationship. The quality and success of ministry is all about relationship. Today, Catherine and I are ending our formal relationship with you as your interim pastor, but we are not ending our friendship. That doesn't change. And we're so happy that we were in Richmond, that we now have all of you as friends. We have a new church family added to other church families that we have. And every time we come back to Newport News to see her family, we know we can come through Richmond, Virginia. It's been a totally rich experience for us, but we'll leave today with grief. And you say, really, you've only been here 20 months? Yeah, we'll leave grieving, why? Because grief is the evidence of love. Grief is evidence that there's been love. So here's the point. If you don't ever want to grieve in life, just don't love anybody. If you don't ever want to feel the pain of grief, just choose today that you will not love another human being and you'll never feel the pain of grief. How many would sign up for that? None. We choose to love And therefore, we will feel the grief when we lose our husbands and our wives and our mothers and our fathers and our grandparents. And God forbid you ever lose a child or a brother like I have while I've been here. We grieve. And it's the price we're willing to pay because there was love. So in that sense, grief is a good thing. As hard and painful as it is, it is evidence of love, but I want you to think with me on another level other than me. Your new pastor to come, and that will happen. That new pastor will be leaving a congregation that more than likely they love. They may be someone who is deeply rooted in that congregation, and God has called them to come to First Presbyterian Church, Richmond, Virginia. And so when we clergy move around, We're having a wedding and a funeral at the same time. Because in our hearts, we're having a funeral, a death, a change, a loss of the congregation we just left. When I left Charlotte, it was one of the most painful things I've ever done. 13 years of working with those people through the the 208 crash in a banking city, we really bonded. Preaching to bankers during that crash was both a privilege and a challenge because that city, as your city, was hurting. We bond together in these experiences of life and we left there uh, torn up with grief. Your new pastor will more than likely be coming to Richmond with grief in their heart for leaving their golf buddies, their tennis buddies, their Spouse will be leaving their friends, their children. Listen, when we moved to Charlotte, we, our, we have three children. <clears throat> Excuse me, three children. And the other two had already gone off to college. And Sarah, we call her Sarah Catherine, 
uh, Sarah moved to Charlotte with us and she was a rising junior in high school when we ripped her out of Charleston, South Carolina and moved her to Charlotte her junior, her, the start of her junior year. Well, we had a pool at the house and the new house in Charlotte had a pool in the back. And uh, I noticed that Sarah was not, um, and Sarah, if you're listening to this, I'm going to tell this whole story. Uh, I noticed that Sarah was not um, using the pool. And one day I said, Sarah, why don't you ever swim in the pool or invite somebody to come over? Your mom and I'll stay away. I mean, why don't you use the pool? And she said, because I will never give you the privilege of seeing me happy. And then I said, okay, you obviously need to talk to your mother. (laughs) She was grieving. There we were in Charlotte, North Carolina with everything you could imagine. The PGA, the basket, I mean, that stuff I love. The basketball, the football, the, you know, the big city. We had uh, so much to look forward to. And this little girl was grieving. So when pastors leave churches... They come to new churches who are having a wedding, getting married, and we're so glad you're here. And in our family's hearts, there are grief. Why? Because there was love. It's a real awkward time in the life of a pastor and their family in the exchange of calls. It's a very tough time. So here they are enjoying life with you and going home at night to weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is. It's a very painful, awkward time. It's important to end well. Endings in life are important. How you say goodbye, as Esther said. Although, you know, you said, I think you said, uh, you know, it's not really goodbye. We'll all see each other in heaven. And I thought, well, that's good. I just don't want to go to heaven today. I mean, you know, (laughs) I'd like to wait a little while. um, But I got your point. Sort of. When I left Myers Park, I said uh, to him, I gave him a seven-month runway for my leaving because I wasn't going to another church. I was going into consulting. And I said, I've got seven months I can give you and 12 objectives that we'll accomplish during those seven months. That's a long time to say goodbye, but we had 12 things we were going to work on. So I almost became their first transition pastor on my way out. But I said, look, I don't want to be a lame duck. You've heard that term. And it sort of means, again, for kids, lame ducks can't really fly. They're flopping through the air. They, you know, they don't have any power. And I said, I, I don't want to spend seven months as a lame duck. I want to be a landing duck. That's interesting. You ever seen a photo of a landing duck? The wings are back. The tail end sort of up in the air. They've got their eyes on the landing spot. They're very, very intentional about how they are ending this flight. That's what I want to be. It's important how you end with people. And some folks deny the ending, say, oh, it's not really happening. They ignore it. It's too painful for them because of the grief, which again means there was a lot of love. 
But intentional endings have power to them when the wings are back and and the bottom's up and the sight's on the target and we are intentionally ending an official relationship or we're ending time with our children who are at home with us. Now we're empty nest. Talk about it. Put your wings back. Be intentional about how that ending's going to happen and take a long enough runway to get there. Hopefully your new pastor is going to have a good ending with their current church. Wherever they are this morning, they're preaching and they might not even know what's about to hit them, you know, that God's going to call them to a new place and turn their life upside down. And how they end with that church is going to be important. I think we're ending well, but I know Paul was trying to end well when he called that meeting with those elders and said, I need to see you before I go. I have some things I need to say to you. I met with a session here and gave them 10 points that I thought were my observations as I walk out the door. And we had a very open and honest discussion about the life of this church and where things are going. And we empowered those leaders to now be in charge of this church. It's your turn. This church has been here since 1812. You do not want it to fall apart on your watch. God has put this church here for a reason. And to my knowledge, that reason has never changed. So if God were done with this church, I think we'd know it because it wouldn't be filled to capacity this morning. You know, we could actually do Christmas Eve right now and just get it over with. Somebody's clapping. Yeah. It's the best thing that boy ever said. Let's do it. How you handle transitions. Very, very important stuff. Pay attention to it. Be intentional with it. Beginnings are also important, aren't they? How we begin when you're dating somebody, you always put your first, you know, your best foot forward, you know, and, and, and you're very intentional about where are we going to go to dinner? What am I going to look like? You wash your car, get it all clean. You know, you're going to date and then you get married. And that all goes out the window in a hurry. No, actually it doesn't. The beginning of a marriage is a very important time. We call it a honeymoon. Getting away from everybody, getting away from the wedding, starting the marriage. We do it. We're very intentional about how we begin things. We're going to a new college. We want to be very intentional about how we start that school or that new business or that new career. We have a long runway on good beginnings. And we're very intentional. I had to make a lot of flights last year uh, with the consulting group. I was on a plane every week. Some of you have done that. And, and every single flight, it was the same thing. They won't take off in a hurry. You have to get on and wait. You have to go through the whole routine. How many times does somebody have to be told how to buckle a seatbelt? I don't know. But every single time, they're very intentional about how we're going to start this flight. How are you going to start with your new pastor? It's got to be more than you just watching them to see if they're good enough. That's not fair. Because they put their pants on like everybody else. And guess what? They're going to be watching you to see if you're good enough. It's a two-way street. And it can't just be that you have a reception on Sunday morning after their first Sunday, and so now we're started. It's not enough. 
you need an intentional beginning to this ministry. Pastors want to have family. They want to have friends just like everybody else. I was telling the group earlier this morning, you know, it's interesting when I'm playing golf with somebody and nobody knows I'm a minister. Tongues are a little loose. Stories are a little wild. Then all of a sudden, here it comes. So, uh, what do you do for a living? And I'll say, well, what do you think I do for a living? That's just a little game I play. About 90% of them think I'm a lawyer. I don't know why. And I'll say, yeah, uh, I have something to do with the law. And they'll say, well, then you're a judge. And I go, yeah, some days I am a judge. Well, what do you do, man? And I'll say, well, I'm a Presbyterian minister. Oh, Lord. The blood goes out. All of a sudden, they're thinking about everything they've said. Then they start talking about their grandmama. You know, about, well, my grandmama, she goes to church. She's a saint, I'll tell you what. She's a Baptist, but, you know, what's the difference between... I said, look, man, just play golf. You know, I'm a guy like you. I just want to play golf. I don't want to talk church, okay? Your pastor wants to... And their spouse, male or female, they just want to be people. They don't want to be treated like China dolls. They don't want to be treated like somehow they're different from you. They want to go to a ball game. They want to go to Altria. They want to go over for dinner. They want to go to a dance club. Yeah. They want to be part of your life. It takes a while to build memories with a congregation. When we first move somewhere, all of our memories are back where we came from. Many of you have moved. You know what I'm talking about. So whenever you talk about anything, I'm always talking about Charlotte. Well, in Charlotte, we did it. In Charlotte, we did it. And people get sick of hearing Myers Park, Charlotte. And then you start building memories with your church, like my hole-in-one at Kenlock. Did I tell you all about that? It was a beautiful Tuesday. I was on the seventh hole. No, I mean, you, you, uh, you start building a life, but it takes time. And then the homesickness starts to disappear because all of a sudden one day you drive out of the back lot and you realize, I am home. But it takes a while. And we've said, when we're coming back to Richmond, Catherine and I both have said, well, we're, we're heading back home. Well, our home is in Brevard, North Carolina. Not while we were here, it wasn't. It was here. So how you bond with this new creature and their family, Come, you don't have to bond with your banker and their wife. You don't have to bond with your doctor and their wife or husband. You bond with your clergy and their families. It's real different. I'd encourage you to wear your name tag too. There's 1,300 of you and one of us. That's unfair. And so I'll be in a restaurant, somebody will come by, we're eating dinner, and they'll say, hey, Dr. Eason, I know two things. You don't know me, and I don't know you. Because nobody calls me Dr. Eason. Everybody calls me Steve. So it's, and then I'll say, hey, you church member, you, you. I love you, church member. My wife says, who is that? And I go, I don't have a clue. Tell them your name for six months. Would you do that? Six months. So when they show up, you come to them and say, hey, I'm Margaret. And then after a while, they'll say, Margaret, I know you. Or you'll start coming and they'll say, Margaret, they got you. Six months, because most of you won't wear your name tag. I'm seeing a bunch of 
derelict people right now. And I can't remember all your names because people are serving with me on committees or on the session or something like that. I'll get your name. But if I'm only seeing you on Sunday morning coming and going and we don't have any life experience together, I haven't been in your home for dinner. We haven't gone anywhere together. It's hard to get that name. Six months. Tell them your whole name. Ina now did that in Charleston, South Carolina. Remember that? Every Sunday, Ina came out and said, I'm Ina now. It's just good to see you. And I finally said, Ina, I know your name. She said, I know, but I just like saying it. I'm Ina now. So I've got a bucket full of memories with you. Uh, the first college of elders banquet we had was spectacular. All the elders of the church came for a dinner and I had pledge cards sitting on their plates. And uh, that college of elders has stepped up financially to support this church. You need to know that. And this church needs your financial support. This church isn't flush. And there's not three families in this church paying all the bills. This church needs you. It needs your whatever you give, 2500 a year, 25000 70000 It needs your gift. And so that College of Elders banquet set the pace for us. It said, man, this dude's serious. And he wants us to go somewhere. And you did go somewhere. Your Christmas, your Easter, your great music, the staff retreats, the oysters, the meals, the parties, and the incredible amount of work we've accomplished in this church. I will never forget any of this or any of you. It's been an amazing experience. And I envy the pastor who's coming in many ways. You know, if I were younger, I'd have thrown my name in the hat. But you need a pastor who can come and give you 12 to 15 good years of solid staff building. You need a capital campaign. I'm just going to launch it right now. You need a capital campaign out there in the next three or four years. And you need somebody who can give you the time to build that continuity. And that's what your uh, search committee is looking for. That's a tough job they've got. And some of you might be wondering, why hadn't they called somebody already? And I said earlier in the Sunday school classroom, if they were a bunch of lawyers hiring a, a lawyer, you would have taken three lawyers, put them in an office, closed the door. They come in at 7.30 in the morning. They work till 7.30 at night. By Friday, they would hire the new lawyer for the firm. You have nine people who are trying to hire somebody to do a job that none of them have ever done. And they don't meet 7.30 in the morning till 7.30 at night. They have businesses and families. They're volunteers. They have to learn this job. They have to learn this church. And then they have to go out and search for people who may not want to move. And they're talking to those people about, but you need to come to Richmond. And in this market, you have spouses who are married to these clergy people who also have professions and careers, which makes it more complicated to uproot families and move them. It's a tough job. And you should be praying for them, for your search committee. Every day when you're saying the blessing or something, just pray for the search committee. They're very faithful people. And the right pastor will come to this church at the right time and not before. You don't want the wrong pastor at the wrong time. Trust me. That's a disaster. You want the right pastor and they will come at the right time. When is that? Only God knows. But I can vouch for that committee that they're doing everything within their power 
to make that happen. A good beginning is really intentional. How will you begin with this new pastor when they come? You know, I love this quote from Dr. Seuss, the greatest theologian ever. Don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. That's how we feel. We'll be driving out of Richmond today after the reception. Our cars are loaded to the gill. We're driving to Brevard uh, this afternoon. We moved out of our apartment on Thursday. We went to my mother-in-law's for two nights. We feel like gypsies. But on the way home, both of us will be grieving and smiling all at the same time. On this Sunday before Thanksgiving, we are thankful for you. We're thankful for this opportunity. We'll always keep up with you. We hope you'll keep up with us. We'll pray for you. Please pray for us. And you don't know what it means that we were here. God bless you. Amen.